G'day and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Sarah Mortimer from Kalgoa Kelpies. Sarah will be picking who she thinks has asked the best question of the night and they will win a bag of Enduro Plus high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Hey Sarah, how are you going? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. That's awesome. How you uh, actually want to thank you for getting on today. I know you're a little bit under the weather, so thanks for uh, going that extra mile for us. <laughs> That's okay. I'm pretty tough, so I'll be I'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, what's the what's it doing up in? Um, is it sunny Katingle of a day at the moment, or are you guys getting a lot of this rain as well? Um, it, it rained actually a bit oh, the day before yesterday, I think it was, and today was sort of half cloudy, half sunny. So yeah, it's been it's been a pretty wet couple of months here, really, and it started to get quite cold. Uh, cool. So we'll jump straight into it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, so I originally grew up um, at Tamworth um, on 25 acres, sort of just on the edge of town. Um, and when I was a kid. Um, I have an uncle, he had a larger property um, out near Manila and um, we used to often go out there and run around the hills and help him muster um, and I sort of decided I suppose when I was about 12 or 13 that there had to be a better way of doing this and I was also quite a fan um, of the movie Babe so mm -hmm. <laughs> that's when I decided I wanted to get a border collie which mum and dad got me for, I think it was my 13th birthday present. I called it fly. It really wasn't anything else I could. Yeah. <laughs> and that was sort of where it sort of all started, I guess. She wasn't the world's best dog, but she wasn't a bad dog, I guess, to start with. Um, and then I, it wasn't long after that that I sort of got my first Kelpie, um, and that was Becky. And she was the one that sort of, yeah, I suppose started all the dogs that I've got today. Beautiful. Yeah. And... Where did your passion for livestock sort of come from? I always loved sheep. Um, I don't really know why. Um, I guess just growing up, I loved animals, I suppose, of all sorts. I've always loved animals. I'm also a veterinary nurse as well. Um, but, yeah, I always – I loved sheep and I loved wool. Um, I actually, when I was 12, um, I decided I wanted to do wool classing. So my mum somehow convinced the TAFE teachers to take me on and I graduated. I think I was 13. I was the youngest ever qualified wool classer in Australia. So I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was. Wow. <laughs> um, so I suppose the sheepdogs were sort of a natural progression from that as well. I've always loved the wool industry, always loved sheep. Um, and so, yeah, it was always livestock i suppose and um and agriculture had always been a passion ever since i was very very young and it's still a big part of my life today um, yep. just sorry can, you can hear us all right obviously there yeah i can i can hear you it's all right we just had one of our guests tell us there's no sound so we're just going to double check that quickly yeah and we just had one of our guests tell us there's no well, Sorry, yep. no, well, we oh, can good. hear that. So, uh, guys, um, if you're not hearing anything there, you might just want to check um, the volume on your on your computer or on your um, electrical device that you got there. So that's all right. We'll keep trucking on. Um, so when you actually sp started out, like obviously you got your first dog when you're younger, but who was there? Someone that inspired you that you you seen with a dog and went, "Oh shit, I want to be like that person," or want to take some of that on? 
I guess my um, the person who got me started in it and my mentor for the first few years was definitely John White. Yeah. Um, Actually, just look, just before I steal your thunder there, question from Simon Bowden. Who has been your biggest help on your dog journey? My biggest help? I guess I would still say John White. He was the one who, who got me started, but a lot of the things that he taught me, particularly um, about breeding Kelpies, I still remember and I guess I still believe um, are very, very applicable. And, and I take a lot of notice of just some of those basic things that he sort of taught me. Um, I think he was probably a bit of a master at, at actually breeding Kelpies as well as working them. So um, some of the things that he used to sort of teach me is like he, he said, you know, like for picking a pup too, um, he'd say always pick a pup, you know, that's got nice dark eyes, carries its tail low. Um, and his reasons for that was that, you know, the tail's a reflection of what's going on in their mind. So a pup that's getting around with a high tail setting is probably um, not as calm and stable in the mind as a pup that's carrying its tail low. And from my experience, it's definitely, it follows through with what I've experienced. Um, and he used to talk about, you know, um, I suppose breeding, making sure that there's still some common link on both sides. You know, obviously we, we need to be careful of inbreeding too closely, but um, if you want to get some consistency and predictability in what you breed, it's important that there still be a bit of a common link, I suppose, in both the sire and dam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm glad I got, grabbed that off Simon X. I didn't want to steal his thunder. That was a, a question of the night. So that that's cool. Um, we were pushing through here. Sorry, we've got a stack of questions. I hear things coming through at the same time. Um, have you noticed a change in the way people, like you mentioned you've been doing it for some time and wool class and really young. Have you noticed a change in the way people are handling stock and their dogs? I think people are now um, a lot more conscious probably about handling stock in a low stress manner um they've become a very valuable entity i guess particularly over recent years both sheep and cattle um and i think people are animal welfare is getting to be a you know more and more at the forefront i also spent three years working at um, thomas foods abattoir here in tamworth in the stockyard there and um it's very apparent i suppose um how conscious we need to be of animal welfare when we are working stock. So I think that's something that people are probably becoming more and more conscious of. Um, I think traditionally probably a lot of people worked like a real, like more of a pack, I suppose, maybe on, yeah. on stock, um, whereas whereas it's sort of going now. Like I, I guess I believe, well, I personally can't work more than two dogs at once, um, not effectively or well. There yeah. might be some people who can, but but I certainly can't. Once it goes beyond those sorts of numbers, um, they're sort of they're working as more of a pack and doing their own thing, which you know is probably going to have a negative effect generally on on animal welfare. Yeah, absolutely. And do you have a, a type or a style of dog that you prefer? I suppose for me, um, I sort of believe I suppose the yard work, you know, your backing and barking and that sort of stuff for me that can be largely taught. Um, and most dogs are capable of it, whereas your true paddock work, you know, and that, that feel, that cast, um, that stockmanship, that stuff you can't teach. It has to be instinctive and has to be bred in. So I suppose for me I'll always look for a pup that shows me those traits um, because I'm always pretty confident that I can, I can teach them to back and teach them those things because I don't believe that's quite the, um, uh, I guess, it doesn't require the instinct to be there 
that the other does. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your current team? Yeah, so my current team, um, I've got two dogs, Shuffle and Susie. So they're both out of um, White Stixie that I won the national title with. They're about seven now, I think. Um, I guess you could say they're my two two main dogs. They're my, my open trial dogs. Um, their brother and sister, their little brother and sister, they're both by son, Raja George. Um, they're both they're both very different dogs, I suppose, to each other. But they're both very good outside, very good paddock dogs. And um, But, you know, they're happy to to do what you need to in the yard. Shuffling particularly is very good on cattle as well. Um, Susie's a little bit softer. She's She probably, yeah, doesn't love the cattle work, but, um, but she's pretty good, yeah, yard and paddock work. And then I've got I've got a couple of younger dogs. Um, I've got one by Shuffle that's about two-year-old. He's, he's, he's quite a nice young dog called Clyde. I haven't trialled him yet, but that's probably just been a bit unfortunate. The last few that I've been planning to go to have been cancelled due to COVID, et cetera. But he'll he'll get a start very shortly, and then I've got um, uh, another one there. Hope she's a granddaughter of Dixie. Um, she's had a couple of starts, and she's she's pretty nice little bitch. And then I've got a couple of pups. So yeah, not a big team at the moment, but um, for what I'm doing at the moment, that that probably suits me. I just sort of am looking to have a couple of good ones rather than than a big number. And, and I've heard you mention like um, cattle there a few times and sheep. To you, what makes a good cattle dog and what makes a good sheep dog to you? Um, I think a cattle dog, as a general rule, needs to um, they need to have a fair bit of presence um, and a fair bit of strength, a bit of mental stability, but not not too much bark. Generally, that seems to just, for my way of thinking, it stirs the cattle up. Um, you can get away with it a bit more probably on sheep if they if they bark a bit freer, but but um, but not always. Sometimes I find, as it well actually often, um, if a dog barks when at the wrong time, it creates a lot of a lot of problems. Um, I'd actually probably prefer even a sheep dog to be completely silent than one that than, that barks when when I don't ask for it. So as a general rule for either, I guess I'd like them to be pretty quiet unless I ask for it. Um, a bit of walk-up strength. That's probably something generally in my dogs that um, I would work on, I suppose, or be looking to add in a little bit. They've got a lot of cover, a lot of feel, um, but sometimes when you want them to square up and walk in, they, you know, there could be a bit more there than, than what I've currently got. So that's probably something that I'm always looking to see if I can improve. Just answer the question from later on, so that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, question here from Rick Freeman. What are some types of faults or one fault in a working dog that you are prepared to tolerate due to most other aspects of its work being strong? Yeah, okay, a fault that I would tolerate. If there is any. <laughs> oh, there always is because there's no such thing as there's no such thing as perfect. Um I suppose it's very easy for me to think of the faults that I that I wouldn't tolerate, but if I'm thinking of one that I that I would, um, I suppose for me, if they are a little bit softer, um, if you want to call that a fault, I suppose um, I've always been able to sort of tolerate that if everything else is is pretty right. But that's sort of more of a I guess what suits your personality rather than necessarily a fault because some people, yeah, whether whether softness is a fault or not is probably very subjective. 
Um, I'm just trying to think of what other faults I'd actually tolerate. There's probably, like, in terms of bad faults, there's probably not not a lot. Um, you know, they're probably, they're, if, I guess it'd depend if they're faults I think I can alter a little bit. Um, What's a couple of faults that you, you feel like if a dog has, you can alter? Um, I think sometimes if a dog wants to say overhead, overwork a bit, um, that's something that I suppose I've dealt with a fair bit and I feel that I can I can manipulate that and slow them down. Um, so a fair few of my dogs, they'll tend to want to, they'll come almost too far around on the head um, and and be sort of looking to be on that head a bit too much. But I think that's something that that I can certainly deal with, um, probably more so than a dog that's too short. Um, that's not something that I probably – I know you can sort of try and kick them that little bit further if, if they're that little bit short. But, yeah, if they're, if they're seriously short, yeah. that's not something that, that I probably tolerate too much. Um, yeah. Probably it also depends. I think too. Here's probably something. If if a dog's got one fault, I think it's a lot easier to deal with than if they've got multiple. Yeah. So yeah, like say if you've got a dog that's doing something that you don't like, that has a a, a temperament fault as well, and won't yeah. allow you to interfere with it. Well, then you've got a serious problem. Whereas if you know if they've got a good solid temperament and a, and a trainable and happy to let you interfere, then I suppose there's a lot more you can do about um those other faults if they'll let you interfere yeah no, absolutely earlier on you mentioned you know um fly and becky and, and dixie who do you feel has been the most influential dog um to get you to where you are today in terms of who have you grown most of probably probably old becky um so that was dixie's mother to be honest she probably she probably was the dog that taught me how to work a dog and how to work sheep because really before that I had no idea um and to this day she's probably she's probably one of the smarter natural dogs that I've had anything to do with really like she was very independent you know like you could you could put her on a mob of sheep in a paddock and leave her with them and go and get another mob and, and come back and she'd either still have them there or you could leave her to drive one mob you know in, I'm talking big you know 5,000 acre paddocks you could leave her with a mob to to drive them home while you went and found others. Um, and I probably haven't had another dog that would work that independently. Um, so she probably, yeah, she probably taught me a lot about what a dog can do and, and what they should do. She was also extremely good at mustering feral goats. Um, so, yeah, she taught me a lot there and, and I guess financially helped me a lot as yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to drop that. but Yeah. Yeah, no, she yeah, she definitely paid paid for a dog food, that's for sure. Um, is there a dog that someone else has that you'd like to inherit? Got like whether they're still here or gone? Um, that's an interesting question. I think to a degree, probably not, because I think any any exceptional dog that that you see that someone else is working you've got to always remember that that's a combination it's not a dog on its own and that dog without the person that goes along with it the handler that goes along with it wouldn't necessarily be what you see um so yes they might be still a really great dog but 
But when you see a dog that's in trials, it's I definitely believe it's the combination and the click with the handler that's allowing them to do that. Um, like I certainly believe, like obviously I did very well with Dixie. A lot of other people wouldn't have. Um, and I'm not saying that's anything against their way of handling. It's just, yeah, she just suited me and, and we had a relationship and clicked. And I think you've got to, yeah, I think it's always worth remembering a lot of those exceptional dogs have got that relationship with their handler. Um, and if, yeah, if you necessarily had them yourself, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be quite the same. So no, I, I don't think I've ever sort of seen other dogs and wished I owned them. I suppose I just am looking for that exceptional one that suits me. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that Fly, um, your first dog of 13, was, was a collie and um, John Roston was your mentor and now you've got all Kelpies. Why why Kelpies? Why not Collies or vice versa? <laughs> so, yeah, my first one my first one was a Collie, obviously, because because of the movie. Um, yeah. And then I, I did go to Kelpies. I've played around with a few Collies since. Um, I have had a couple of others. I've never really found one that, that suited me. Um, I guess I sort of believe, I think the two breeds are very different. And if, if you probably largely are someone who suits one or the other, um, and it, yeah, for me, I suppose I find, um, I'm probably a little bit impatient maybe for border collies. Sometimes, you know, I think they need to be brought up a bit slower. Um, and I, I can certainly be patient, but yeah, I guess I'm probably a fairly hyperactive person myself sometimes so <laughs> the kelpies probably suit my personality <laughs> how important is having a trainable dog or a biddable dog um i think it is very important um it, it depends it depends on your own personality i suppose and um how much you want to be in the picture as well um so like I want a dog to be trainable and, and biddable, but by the same token, I definitely don't want it to be looking to me for a command or wanting to be a robot. Um, I would far rather be fighting with a dog to pull it off where it wants to be than having to put it there. Um, yeah, I have yeah. no tolerance for that. So most of my dogs, I suppose, when they're younger, I do fight with them a bit to get them off the head and, and get them off where they want to be because they really do want to be there. Um, but once you get through that, um, they are, you know, they are really good dogs and, and you can sort of leave them to their own devices. So, yes, they do need to be trainable and they need to be biddable, but um, I guess it's always this balance between um, their own instinct and where they want to be and, and how much you're going to be um, involved. Um, and I think for that, everyone, that's a bit of an individual thing. Some people want to be more of a... Um, yeah. Control freaks in some ways. Control freak, yeah. Yeah, they want to be able to put them where they want to put them a lot more. Yeah, I want them to know where they want to be and be able to put them where I want, but ideally I won't have to do that very often because they'll be in the right spot most of the time. <laughs> Let's hope so, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> That's right. And like, we've seen an increase in auctions over the last couple of years. Um, obviously, you know, as a price of dogs go up, we'll probably even see more. Have you got a take on auctions? What's your opinion? Um, I think they've been a very good thing probably for increasing the value of dogs um, and, and letting their value be, be realised. Um, I guess 
I can see them being a fairly, or how, how can I put it? I wouldn't necessarily like to go and buy a dog at an auction myself. Um, yeah. Just because I guess are you get, you're only seeing what, what, you know, you, you can see in five minutes um, and you're potentially paying a lot of money for it. But I think, I think for the most part, they have been a good thing for, for bringing, you know, working dogs more into the public eye and um, and for people being able to actually sort of realise what they are worth because there is a lot of, lot of time and a lot of hours and effort goes into, into training a dog. Um, so it's certainly good that it is being rewarded. Um, in terms of training pups, there's a um, question here from Jessica. What is the best age to start a pup, in your opinion? I guess it depends on on what you're determining as start. So I'll show a pup sheep once it's weaned, really, you know, like eight weeks old, ten weeks old. Um, and I guess I'm just wanting to see that instinct come out and sort of start to assess them, but that's all I'm doing at that age is just assessing um, what they're showing me. Um but th that's far, far, vastly different to training. Um, if you're talking about um, actually starting to get a pup, you know, balancing up and um, and doing a bit of training, it needs to obviously be keen to work, but generally probably four to five months old, somewhere in that sort of area. Yeah, but that's still only at a very basic level of training and letting it work within its own instinct. I generally don't put much command on a pup other than maybe teaching it to sit and come to me until it's seven or eight months old or, or even a bit older. On that, that's a good question there. No, question here from Rick Freeman. What are the first two things you teach a pup or an unstarted dog and with a fully trained finished dog, what do you exactly – hang on, we'll go <laughs> first part of the question. <laughs> what are the first two things you teach a pup or an unstarted dog? What are the first things I'll teach a pup? Um I guess the first thing I'll, I'll teach a pup is, is just some basic manners. Um, and this I'll do even before I go into any sheep, just teach it to walk on a lead, um, always walk behind me. I never want a pup walking in front of me. Um, and that's the start of, I suppose, ultimately not having it cross between me and the sheep and, and developing that balance. Um, so I'll, I'll teach it some lead manners. I'll teach it to sit on a lead, um, come when I call it, just, just really that basic stuff. And then... Once I put it on sheep, I just I just incorporate those same same basic um, training into into its work. So you know, so I can call it off sheep, um, put a stop on it. Um, yeah, just just the really really basic stuff at the start. Second part of the question: um, With a fully trained finished dog, what exactly do you expect it to be able to do well, no matter what it is working or whether it's in the paddock or, paddock or the yard? I guess I'd always expect it to cover anything that wants to break. Um, it, it needs to be able to cover and hold and control its stock, regardless of whether it's in the paddock, in the yard. Um, if it can't do that, it's probably not much good to me. Um, yeah, it needs, to, it, it needs to know where it needs to be to be able to control its stock. Um, and it needs to be able to have, I guess, a good cast and, and good sides on it so that um, I can put it where it needs to be. Um, in order to get a job done, pretty much. Yeah. Absolutely. And while we're talking about training, you held um, one of your first schools over the weekend? Yeah, I did. It was actually my very first one. Well, yeah. there you go. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. How'd it go? 
we had, uh, I think it was 10 people um, came yeah. to it and um, it went really well. I had some really good feedback and I've got, I think, a list just as long again of people mm -hmm. who either want to come back again or people who couldn't attend that day. So oh, I definitely awesome. will look at holding another one in a couple of months' time, I think. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's good to make, I think, teaching other people makes you actually um, think about what you do yourself because yes. um, for a long time I worked dogs but I couldn't have told anyone what I actually did or or how I did it it just I did, it was just something I did whereas once you start actually teaching it to other people like I've taught a few friends and things who've decided they want to get a pup and that's how I sort of started to actually think about um, what it is that I that I do and um, and then yeah once you've got to teach it to someone else I think it makes you do it better yourself. Yeah. What was one of your biggest takeaways yourself from that? Obviously, you, everyone there enjoyed themselves and took a lot away, but what, what did you take away for yourself? Um, I guess that there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of keen uh, people out there at the moment wanting to learn to to train dogs and particularly um, starting pups and um, and and from the basics. And I think it's important um based on some of the feedback i got as well that that when we run these schools we don't just assume that everyone's at the same level um and that we do cater for people who who are actually just starting out because we've all been there at some point um and sometimes it's important to just go right back to basics and explain you know what the instinct is that we're working with and how it actually works and um and that was some of the things that i sort of went through at the start and everyone sort of yeah, said so that that was really, really good and something that they've not always had, I guess, at other schools. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of training, do you have any milestones or expectations for a pup to reach by a certain age? Um, I guess to a degree. I guess it depends a little bit on how much I've put into it So, and my situation at the time. So I've been in a few different situations. So... You know, when I was working on a property full time, um, a lot more of my training, you know, would be on the job and I would always make time, you know, for some specific um, training, in a, you know, in a small yard with pups and things. But um, my milestones then were probably reached a bit sooner, I suppose, to a degree, just because I could actually give them that, that solid work at the moment. Um, it's probably a little bit reversed where a lot more of my work is in a training situation and then I have you know opportunities but more limited opportunities to provide them with that general work so because of that it's probably slowed down those milestones a little bit um it doesn't mean you still can't get there I think you've just got to got to allow that it's going to take an extra six months um but I suppose I'd like to think that a dog you know is is fairly capable of doing most things by the time it's 18 months old that's that's probably a general aim um, and to do that, generally at six months, they're, they're keen to work and, and you're starting to do something with them. Yeah. What if, if you're not seeing anything at six months, do you persevere if it's something you like or do you go, it's time to move it on? Um, I have, I suppose, but these days generally not. Um, that's probably about the marker for me um, is about that sort of six months. Um I think I think that's a very personal thing, and I, and what you absolutely just said there, like 
if it's a pup you like is a big part of it you know like yeah. if, if it's a three-month-old pup i don't like i'm already done i'm not interested <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that is the big key um and definitely if it's a pup i like i'd go longer but for me probably that six months is still the probably the more the maximum time even if i do like it it needs to be starting to show me something um and i i don't doubt and i've certainly had dogs that have reached that mark and, and i haven't been happy with and i've given them to people and they've gone on to be really really good dogs they just needed a different situation to the one that i could provide them and i think that's always worth remembering um we've all got different situations and sometimes it's not even anything against the pup it's just it needs something different to the situation that we can give them so do you ever just um sorry to what degree do you just trust the breeding in that pup or is it more just what it's showing you um well absolutely i trust the breeding i suppose for the start as in if it hasn't got the breeding i won't even i won't even start um, yeah that, that's the first prerequisite the breeding has to be there or i just know that the chances of it ever showing me what i want are extremely remote or next to nil yeah so so the breeding has to be there um but then it still needs to try you know show you the traits that you want it to um it never ceases to amaze me how many traits are actually genetic and some of the weirdest weirdest little traits like even um dixie so she had this trait of like she'd always shove her nose in under your hand and make you patter and all her progeny will do it and even she's had quite a few pups even pups i've sold to other people who don't sook their dogs or pet their dogs or anything have come up to me and said their dog does this weird thing where it'll just shove its nose in under their hand mm -hmm. and make it it. And like that's a genetic trait, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just weird. The yeah, it never ceases to amaze me how much is genetic. Like it, it really is such a massive, massive factor, um, and not to be underestimated. So yeah, if the genetics aren't there for what, if you can't see in the parents and grandparents what you're wanting to see, you're probably not going to see it in the pub. Yeah. Yeah. Question here from Rick Freeman. How do you teach come behind and also driving? Okay. So for come behind, um, I initially start on a, on a long rope. Um, that's, that's how I find, I find is the easiest way. Um, so I just, yeah, have a, have a long training rope. I do it away from stock at the start and then, um, just by, you know, taking it for walks and then generally once I've got them on stock, um, you know, I'll use a, a rake or a piece of poly or something to block them up and teach them to come to me um, and then just sort of build from there. Um, and what was the other part of that one? Uh, and also drive. Like oh, drive. driving. Okay, so, yeah, that one, I find that one often is a bit challenging because, like, we start pups, everything's on balance and it is for quite a while. Um, and then there's that point where we go, okay, now to actually get jobs done, we also need to be able to, you know, not just, have them bring the mobber sheep to us we need to be able to drive the mobber sheep somewhere and i won't lie that's often a fairly rough couple of days when i first start deciding to do that with a young dog when i because it's generally once i actually need to do a job with them especially um, with heading yeah especially <laughs> when they want to head um so yeah that that but what i suppose i generally try to do is i rely on my stop or my sit so when they get you know you'll send them out to the to the point and they're heading to the head and, and i'll just rely on that being able to stop them where i want to and then essentially sort of call them back with my side commands um and sometimes it'll work and sometimes they will keep going um and then it's helpful as they start to get tired it gets easier and easier to, to stop them well once they get the idea um i find yeah it's fine they've just got to understand the concept 
it can be a little bit tricky in the meantime, especially if they really do want to get to the head, which mine do. Um, <laughs> there'll be a bit of a teething period. A little frustrating at times, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We've all been there where we're trying to put them through the gate and the dog's right in the middle of the gateway. <laughs> yeah, or sliding off every time you want to get that little bit of straight direction and it keeps sliding. <laughs> no, no, I'll see you, mate. Come back here. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, that's right. They're always sneaking around there on you, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> What's your ideal training setup? Um, To be honest, Probably just about the one I've got now for the first time in my life. Um, I've done plenty of time in hinge joint yards and pieces of corrugated iron and pretty wild sort of setups, just trying to make some sort of a pen to be able to train my pup. <laughs> but um, at the moment I've got I've got a so I've got a round yard um, out, of, out of panels that the pup can't get out of, and then I've got sort of a bigger um, square yard, and then I've got a drenching race with a pen at either end so that I can work the force, you know, from either direction through a drenching race. Um, probably about the only thing I haven't got that you could add to that would be some sort of a little platform or trailer that you can practice going on and off. Um, and then I think, yeah, that and a few obstacles out in the paddock, which is pretty easy to create with a few rocks or things. And, and you, can sort of, you can train most most things, yeah. Um, how important are good breaks and a stop to you? And if so, how do you go about teaching that? I think the importance of that is going to depend a bit on the dog. So, you know, I've had dogs where they're probably not that important because they know where to be anyway and you're not going to have to stop them where they need to be because they're always going to pull up there. And then I've got dogs that, I mean, I've worked dogs that they're extremely important and you 100% rely on them because they're always going to run too far or they're always going to overwork. Um, so I guess the importance that I put on the stop on the dog depends on the dog. Um yeah, so like those old um, Becky and Dixie of mine, yes, they had a stop, but it probably, you know, wasn't as sharp or as crucial as some other dogs I've worked just because they were pretty naturally always pulling up in the right spot anyway. Um, whereas some of the, I'll say the male dogs that I've worked that are fairly full on and want to want to overdo things all the time, I'll make sure I've got a pretty sharp stop on them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I think it I think it's variable as to how important that is as to as to the dog you're working, um, because ultimately you want them to be able to pull up pretty accurately um, at that point of control on sheep. Um, otherwise, you know, every single time they're going to lose points on you in a trial if they run too far. Yeah. But some dogs won't, so it doesn't matter. And we've spoken a bit about the feel that um, your dogs have. Have you got a preferred casting action? And, and if so, how do you go about teaching that? Um, I like a cast to be pretty natural. Um, I guess I've never been one to put a lot of effort into teaching a cast. Um, if they haven't got it, um, I'd probably just go and get one that has. But yeah. I guess I just start off close and, and, and extend it out. Um, and, if and you know, if they're going to, you can tell. If a dog's going to have a good cast, he'll he'll have it at ten meters out, and then it, you know it'll it'll stretch out to twenty meters and hundred meters and five hundred meters. It'll it'll it's all the same principle. Um, some dogs I find are better at, at looking in their cast, like and, and searching for stock, whereas others will just head out and run. And and what they get around, they get around. Um, yeah. Often, I'll work on being able to stop them and recast them, um, and I think that can be a pretty handy tool. 
that comes down to having a good stop and then trying to, you know, be able to make them look and using your side commands to be able to sort of kick them back out again. Um, and I think once you've got that ability, I suppose, and, and can do that with them, that's probably a pretty good tool for being able to extend their casts out. Are you breeding many of your own pups? Um, I Not a lot. I mean, I am. Um, I'm probably at the moment only breeding one or two litters a year. Um, yep. And I'm basically just breeding to try and come up with something for myself that I want. Um, and then obviously, you know, sell the, the other surplus. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not in a, at a point where I'm sort of looking at breeding large numbers of pups commercially or anything like that. It's more just trying to breed something that I want to come up with for myself. So what are you trying to put into your line moving forward? Um, I guess I'd like to definitely maintain the the feel and, and stockmanship and cover um, and natural paddock work that my dogs do have, um, but also try and incorporate probably a little bit more walk-up strength. It's, it's always a trade-off, though. The more you put, that you put in, the more you're going to generally lose of the other. Um, so just, I guess, feeling out that balance all the time and there's always going to be variations either side of that line. Um but yeah, like I guess I, I want to maintain what they what they do have um, and, and probably just try and increase that strength just a little bit. And do you believe that a, a sire or a dam has more influence over a litter, one in particular? Um, I think individual dogs can have more influence over litters. Like I, I think there's certainly sires or dams um, in dogs or in any animal that are very... Uh, dominant, I guess. Um, as a general rule, um, I think you do need to probably focus on the on the dam side. Um, but you know, I think there's individual sires that can improve whatever they're bred to as well. Yeah. So I think I think you definitely have to look at both sides because um, you know certainly both have a contributing factor. But there's no point I don't think having a, a bitch that you think you know, is miles off what you want and you don't like her at all and think, oh, well, I'll just breed her to this really good dog that I like and I'll get what I want because that's probably probably not going to work out the way you want it to. Um, there's, a, there's a slim chance it might, but I think you need some of the traits you're looking for to definitely be on both sides if you're, if you're going to um, stand a better chance of coming up with what you're wanting. Yeah. Uh, question here from Rick Freeman. With a healthy bitch, how many litters would you limit them to? Um, look, that, that's an interesting question and there's a lot of um, controversy, I suppose, in dog breeding in all breeds at the moment. Um, I think it's very, I don't think there's any hard and fast rule. Um, so Becky had one litter, um, which was the one that Dixie come out of and it was completely fine. She had seven pups and they were all good. The next litter, she had three pups and a cesarean and it all went <laughs> all went horribly wrong, I guess. Um, only one of those pups ended up surviving. I ended up breeding her one more time and she had to have another cesarean. The pups all survived, but, you know, her, her breeding career was definitely finished. So in her case, probably one litter was enough for her. Um, but you don't know that until you go through. Um, I think Dixie had about six or seven litters in her lifetime. Never skipped a beat. Um I think it's a case of, as a general rule, I'd suggest breeding a bitch younger. Um, once they hit that six or seven-year-old, you're definitely going to be far more likely to, to run into problems. So you're better off to be breeding them between that sort of two and six years of age. 
um, and you know, probably one liter a year. So what's that give you four or five liters? Probably something yeah. like that's a reasonable, reasonable expectation. And being a vet nurse, I suppose you get cases like that come come through the practice there as well, yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. See it all the time. Probably less so with with your working dogs than a lot of other breeds because they are naturally a bit better at at whelping and doing all that for themselves than some of your bulldogs and all of those sort of breeds. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's extremely variable. And and some bitches, you know, they can have a lifetime of of breeding without an issue, and then you'll have others that just have nothing but trouble. And I think yeah, you're probably better off to to quit with those ones and and go with one that where it's a bit more successful. And when looking at outside size, you're only looking at work traits or common bloodline? <laughs> I'm definitely looking at the bloodline Yeah, as well. Um, I think, you know, there's certainly some exceptional dogs out there um, that don't necessarily have, I suppose they might have good breeding, but they're not necessarily pedigreed and we don't know what their breeding is. And it's not that they won't throw, it's just you don't know how they're going to throw. Um, so as much as a dog... If I'm looking at breeding to a dog, as much as I'm looking at the traits it's actually got, I'm also looking at the bloodlines that are in it because, to me, they're a very good indicator of what they're actually going to throw. Um, and even if I like a dog, if I don't like the breeding that it's come from, for me, I still wouldn't use it um, yeah. because it's probably yeah not going to throw the way I want it to. And while we're talking about size, I suppose it's something you might see a bit of at work as well, um, AI versus of dogs have been dead for some while compared to live coverage. What's your take on, on that? Um, I, I think it's a very legitimate thing to, to look at using dogs that have been frozen um, for some time. I think it's always worth remembering that um, in breeding, we're not always necessarily going forward as much as what we think we are. We're breeding... Um, based on what's needed at the time or, or perceived to be needed at the time but whether that's actually forward is, is sometimes i guess questionable um for example if you if you continually just breed for trialing rather than for work you might have a dog that's awesome for 10 or 15 minutes but can he actually work all day um, and you might actually have to go back to some of those older size maybe to get to get some of that toughness and, and some of those other traits to come back through so yeah, I, I certainly think it's legitimate to to look at being able to go back to old size. Whilst in theory we should be going forward and not need to, it's probably not always actually the case. And what advice would you give to someone wanting to purchase their first dog or pup? Um, just make sure that it is well bred. Um, so do do your research, I suppose. Try and um try and find a mentor i guess if you can to get you started um go maybe go to some dog trials or, or something in your area and um try and find someone who you like how their dogs work and and you know you like the dogs and have a talk to them and and you know maybe look at getting a pup off them um because that you know that's the type of person who can probably help steer you in the right direction but you're going to be far more successful if you can start off with a pup that's bred to to work the way you're going to want it to then if you just try and randomly grab one just because it's a Kelpie or a Border Collie. I know that's how my first one was, um, yeah. but I'm not going to say she was the best dog in the world either, um, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that being the best way to go. Some great advice there. You mentioned trialling. How long have you been trialling now? Um, so I started when I was 18. I'm now 35, so what's that, 28? Is that 17 years? Probably. Oh, 
Like that. Close to it. <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah, quite a while it seems. Yeah, and I was like, oh man, my hips are ready, ready to yeah, yeah. And, and what type of trialing do you do or enjoy most? So I've predominantly yard trialed. Um, I guess there's a few reasons for that. One of the main ones being that for a younger person who works, they're generally run over a weekend. So that's doable. Whereas your three sheep trials um, tend to run over four or five days, which tends to make them more of a retired person's sport. Um, I've done a few three sheep trials and I do enjoy them. I find them very challenging. Um, I think it's always good to, to have a go at a few different types of trialing. Um, I also have had a bit of a go with utility trialing where you're incorporating the yard and the paddock. I think, to be honest, it's a, it's a great, um, it's a great type of trial and probably one of the better tests of an all-round dog if it's run properly. Um, but very very difficult to find the dogs that can actually do it well which always limits the numbers there but i think that's something we should always be aiming for is the dog that that can do you know the yard and the paddock work um together i've had a few guys at cattle trialing as well um but yeah i guess most of my work um throughout my life has been working sheep so i've always probably sort of steered towards the the sheep trials for that reason yeah and why do you trial why do I trial? I guess I enjoy it. I enjoy the challenge. Um, I enjoy it as a, you, you might think your dog's up to a certain standard or, or doing a certain, um, doing certain things well, but it's a great um, test of where they're actually at to take it to a trial. Um, it's really good for showing you what you need to go home and work on. Um, it's good to also, it's good from a social aspect. It's a really good social sport. It's good to um, be able to get out and talk and meet with other people and, um, you know, see, you know, what their dogs are doing. It's also very important if you want to be able to find potential size and things to, to use over your dogs because um, that's mostly how I've done that, I suppose, is going to trials and seeing what, what is about. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of reasons, but it's a, it's a great sport. It's an affordable sport, I suppose, compared to compared to a lot of others. Um, and it's, yeah, it's usually a great, you know, I've always found it to be a great group of people as well. Yeah, um, Shana McPherson has asked, at what age do you do more work on a pup and how many times a week in an ideal world? Um, so, yeah, I probably say say if you're, you know, you're showing your, you know, 10 or 12-week-old pup sheep and just starting to spark its interest, I might show a sheep once a week um, and that's probably about all I'll do through to about maybe six months of age. Um, and then once it sort of hits that sort of six or seven months, that's when I'd start to maybe work it, you know, a couple of times a week. And then as opportunities present, you know, I might have a mob of 100 sheep um, that I'm just drenching or something and I might just drop it out with an older dog and just, you know, let it have a work and, and learn a bit from that experience. Um, but, yeah, I'd, I'd probably never work them more than two or three times a week um, at any stage unless I'm actually working for a living, like doing doing jobs with them. Yeah. Right, cool. We might jump back on some training. Who's there? You're right there. Yeah, I'm all good. <laughs> Just... you, you mentioned before when we asked you about trialing about stuff you can take away. Um, have you ever picked up some stuff in a trial and then used it in in like in a working scenario? You go, oh, that just works to be better for me. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that you can learn. Trialing makes you think about um, where you position yourself a lot, um, your own body position to be able to enhance the flow of sheep. 
Um, and I think he can definitely take that home to a real work situation. Because um, when we generally work, you know, we, you know, we get behind the sheep with the dog and we're hunting the sheep along ourselves and doing, doing whatever we need to. Whereas in a trial, you can't do any of that. So I think it makes you think a lot more about, you know, the subtle things about what you're doing with your own, your own body language and positioning. Um, so I think definitely trialing has made me a, a better stockman, even, even away from trialing. Yeah. And to you, what makes a good trial? What makes a good trial? Um, I think having a course where it's easy to get points off. Um, if everyone's getting around on 97 or 98, um, I find that, yeah, fairly boring. Um, so it needs to be challenging um, and, and easy enough, you know, for a judge to get points off. Um, I don't think it necessarily matters if everyone can't finish in time or um, can't can't complete the course. Um, it's still uh, it makes a challenge out of it, I suppose. If you if you then can actually get all the way around, um, so yeah, that's probably the main thing. I think there just needs to be enough challenge in a trial. And do you have a favourite trial to participate in? Um. Traditionally, probably one of my favourite ones was actually Coonabarabran. Um, I judged there many years and I used to always do it every year. I haven't been there for a couple of years now, but I always found it a really, yeah, just a really laid back, fun trial with a great group of people. Um, so probably some of my favourite trials are those are those smaller ones, I suppose, in in communities where you're just going for fun. It's not it's not yeah. Just pressure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you feel is your best trialing achievement or just a special moment? I guess winning the Australian title with Dixie probably yeah. has to be up there. Yeah, that was um that was definitely definitely a highlight. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a bit of nerves that day? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um leading into that final. I think I was on the lead score going into the final round. And um which is traditionally considered to be very bad luck. So, yeah, I was feeling a lot of pressure. How do you cope with nerves? Um, probably better than I used to. I tend to find, um, you know, breathing techniques, um, yeah. running the scenario through in your mind of how you want it to go. Sorry. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But cool. Um, and obviously you've been trying there for what 17 years now. What's something that you see a common denominator that you see where people struggle? Um I think I think what you were just talking about, actually, nerves is probably a big factor, especially especially for people starting out, but even people who have done it for a fair while. Um, most of the good runs you see wrecked i suppose is because of nerves yeah you've got yeah. a special breathing technique you can share with us yeah um like three seconds in three seconds out might hold it in the middle just yeah just count and, and go slow bit of square breathing yeah yeah that's the one just yeah <laughs> slow it right down and 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 yeah we hear a lot of debates that trial dogs don't make real work dogs <coughs> what do you what's your opinion on that you obviously have done both and do do both yeah what's your yeah. on it um i think yes 100 percent they can do both but they don't have to necessarily 
Um, so there probably certainly are some trial dogs that wouldn't be great work dogs, but there's also yes. some trial dogs that are really great work dogs. I don't think there's a blanket rule anyway. Um, it all depends on probably um, what the person does themselves so if they need the dogs to work as well as trial they'll generally be good work dogs as well as trial dogs if they're only trialing probably doesn't mean that they couldn't be good work dogs but they're probably as a general rule going to perhaps have a dog that's got a bit less work in it just because they are going to struggle to handle the extra work if they haven't got the work to provide it provide it with yeah absolutely and what advice would you give to any young ladies or gentlemen out there that we want to get involved in um, or pursue a career in the livestock industry? Yeah, it's a, it's a great industry. I definitely encourage people. Um, I think there's more and more opportunities. Um, they're, you know, they're scraping out for workers, really. Um, so, yeah, definitely would suggest that people give it a go and, and get into it. There you go, young fellas out there and young women, just give it a go. Yeah. yeah. And who would you like to see come on to Dog Talk? Um, I don't know if John White would, um, but I would like to see him. I'd definitely show up and watch it if he if he would do one. Yeah. Yeah. No works. We'll put that on the list here. So it's come to that time of the evening tonight. Um, is there a question that stood out to you tonight? Um. And they will win a bag of Enduro Plus. Uh, high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Sounds like a pretty good prize. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Probably um, there was a question regarding um, the main things that to you know to teach a pup early on. I just can't think how that one was worded. Yeah, the first two things you teach. First thing. Ugh. The first two things you teach a pup or an unstarted dog? Yep. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a good question. Rick Freeman, you're on a roll, mate. Um, just touch base with us again and you got a bag of Enduro coming your way. And, Sarah, thank you for your time tonight. This isn't a wrap-up, but you also have a bag of Enduro coming your way as well for being oh, a guest. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. So I'd just like to mention uh, before we finish up, Working Dog Challenge at Carcor is coming up um, between the 24th and the 27th of November. They've now got a new website and Dog Talk is actually their podcast of choice. Um, 50,000 prize purse. So, yeah, check it out and book it in your calendar. I already have. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way. Um, one last question. Would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? Yeah, that's that's a challenging one, isn't it? I think I'll go the, the 20, 20 horses the size of ducks because a, a, a horse-sized duck sounds really scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like that, that really does scare me. So I think I'll go the, I'll go the little horses. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, thank you very much for your time, um, Sarah. I know um, you're a bit of coughing and splattering there today, so really appreciate you um, making the time to speak with us once again. Uh, and all our viewers out there, um, thank you for logging on and listening and anyone listening to the podcast. Please remember we learn every day and the day that we stop learning is a sad one for all of us. Thank you. <laughs> See you later. Thank you.